Now let's take your Bibles with me and turn to Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9 will be in verse 31 today. Acts chapter 9, verse 31. We're only going to look at one verse today. Uh, we're going to take a, a portion of the scriptures where, as we have been making our way through the book of Acts, and we've been um, learning, as you know, about the book of Acts, that it is a, a heavily, it is a narrative. Uh, it is telling the story of what is oftentimes called the Acts of the Apostles, but what we would more correctly refer to as the Acts of the Holy Spirit or the Acts of God. Uh, and we come now to this portion in our text. It is, it is one verse. It's kind of set aside, and it is uh, for us a sort of uh, status update on the church here in Acts chapter 9, verse 31. And we're going to focus on this one particular passage today, so not a whole lot to read, but if you would, stand with me anyway as we read the word of the Lord. Acts chapter 9, verse 31. <clears throat> So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, as we come today to this, your word. We ask, Lord, that you would guide us and direct us into all truth, into all wisdom. Lord, I pray today that we might learn from this passage of Scripture, small as it might be, I believe, filled with valuable insight into what it means to worship you and to do so rightly in spirit and in truth. And so, Lord, we ask today that you would encourage us and bless us by the reading and teaching of your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. As you can see from the title of my sermon today, should be on your screen. The title of my sermon today is Fear and Comfort, a, a Church Health Strategy. As I said, we have come to a point in the text where after hearing the great story of Saul's conversion, and it is a great story, spending the past few weeks looking at that, we see a sort of break in the action here as the author Luke is writing for us. And before getting into the next narrative, the next part of the story that he wants us to, to focus on, that he wants to direct his readers to, the author Luke takes time to give a quick update, a quick picture, a snapshot, if you will, of what God is doing in the life of the church. What is happening right now is as Saul has been converted and as the church has certainly faced persecution, both from Saul, but also from, uh, from others, the, the Hellenistic Jews and other Jewish leaders and, and other people, Luke takes time here to show us and to instruct us on what it is that's happening in the church. And mind you, he's saying this not to bring credit or glory to any human being, any man, as we talked about last week, but rather to bring glory to God. And we see from our text, from this one verse, that the church, and as we see the church in all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria, so not just one local congregation, not just the church in Jerusalem, but the church at large had peace and it was being built up. And as we see, the church in the end multiplied. We see here what could rightly be described, unlike what I have described it, as a strategy for church growth, as a church growth strategy. And while we see that the church is indeed growing here, my hope and my attention is rather than focusing on 
how it is that the church might grow, that we first and foremost prioritize how the church might grow in health, how the church might be healthy and be in right relationship with the Lord and operate correctly in accordance with God's word and with who God is. And we see two specific things in our verse today that lead us to certain conclusions. What was it that the church was doing? What was it that the church was about that led to this multiplication, that led to this being built up? We learn that there are two specific things that the author Luke outlines and that he names for us. He says, I want you to directly notice and I want to call attention to two specific things about the church. And that is one, that they were walking in the fear of the Lord and two, that they were walking in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. These two things. Now, mind you, this is not for us an exhaustive list of all the things that ought to be a part of the church, that ought to characterize the church, for there is much still to be said beyond just these two things. However, I think these two ingredients are both foundational and necessary if the church is going to operate in the way that the Lord has intended that it should. And so for today, we have before us a short explanation or indication of a proper church health strategy. We're going to look this week at at just this one verse uh, from Acts. But from this, we are going to look at these two themes, that is the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit in a sort of overview kind of way. What we're going to see today, if I I may, is I want us to do sort of a, a survey of the scriptures and see these two themes and how it is that they relate to the church and how it is that the church is supposed to abide in these things in order to live and operate correctly in this world. And so even though we only have this one verse here in Acts, we're going to bounce around to various verses, uh, and I'm going to do my best to make sure you know where we're at at all times. You might not be able to follow along in your text, but that's okay. Uh, Just jot them down if you don't mind, and if you're taking notes, um, feel free to jot these down and go back later. And and I think for any one of us, this would be a good thing to honestly regularly remind ourselves of of these two doctrines that we will look at here today from Acts chapter 9. The first point of our sermon today as we begin, we will be looking at the first part of what I've titled here, and that is the fear aspect of a church health strategy, and that is that a healthy church is one that fears the Lord. For many of us, if you think of the fear of the Lord, and if you are familiar at all with, uh, with the poetic scriptures in the Old Testament, you'll know that in Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7, the author of Proverbs writes and says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. The fear of God is a concept that is largely in our day and age lost. It's a doctrine that's considered by many to be off-putting, to be unnecessary in our faith. And in many of the places where it does remain, it's been so watered down that the fear of God has been reduced to something, something like respect and affection for God. And while certainly we ought to have an affection for the Lord, we ought to have a a respect for the Lord, we recognize that neither one of those two descriptors carry the weight of what the Bible says, does it? The Bible says more than just you ought to respect the Lord, you ought to admire the Lord, you ought to have this this sort of respect and affection for the Lord. 
The Bible says that you are to fear the Lord your God. In our day today, the doctrine of God's transcendence has been almost abandoned for the sake of God's eminence. What I mean by that is that there are these two doctrines concerning God that both remain true. That God is imminent, meaning that God is with us, that he dwells among us, that he is, he is intimately concerned even about the minute and small aspects of our lives. That it can truly be said that we have a God who is near to us, who is close to us, who cares for us. But it is a sad thing that this doctrine has been so overblown and so outweighed the doctrine of God's transcendence. That is the doctrine that says that God is so high and mighty and above us and outside of us and separate from us at the same time that he is among us. That our God is holy, that he is righteous, that he is just, and that he is supreme over all things for he has created all things. These are doctrines that, when rightly understood, will lead to a proper fear of the Lord. It will lead to something more than just an affection for, more than just a a delight in and a respect of, but it will lead to a fear of God. So much is sacrificed when we lack a fear of God in our lives and in the church. This shouldn't come as a surprise when we consider the significance that the scriptures give to a proper fear of the Lord and its place in our worship. And as churches, we suffer and we experience a detriment when we fail to recognize and properly fear the Lord. In Protestant evangelical churches today, if there was one thing that could be said that is severely, severely lacking, it is a fear of the Lord. I get somewhat bothered and And it sort of rubs me against the grain when I see signs, when I see church bulletins, when I see advertisements saying things like casual worship or come as you are. Indeed, we know that we come to the Lord sinful, broken. We don't make ourselves right before we come to the Lord, but never, church family, do we come to the Lord casually. At least we ought not. Certainly the The God of the scriptures is not one that is to be approached casually or lightly or flippantly, but one who demands a sense of fear and awe for who he is. I think it's a darn shame that that we as, as churches and as evangelical Protestant churches, of which I am proudly one, have for the sake of of other things abandoned a sense of reverence and respect and awe of God as we come to worship. We come together to worship and we are quick to make light of what we do. We are quick to turn it into something fun or a joke or to sacrifice these kind of doctrines for the sake of what might make church attendance grow. Because as we know, as I've already said, this approach to the Lord is not one that is largely accepted in our day and age. People don't want to come to a place that is full of reverence, that is full of awe, but they want to come to a place that is fun, that is energetic, that is lively, that makes you feel good and happy. Our churches lack when we sacrifice the doctrine of the fear of the Lord for the sake of these other things. 
So what I'm going to do today, as I said, I'm going to give us a sort of overview of these doctrines in hopes that they will demonstrate and impress upon you the importance that both a fear of God and a comfort of the Holy Spirit play in our worship and consider why it is that these particular doctrines are noted in the status update of the church that Luke gives. One of the first reasons that I think we ought to, as a church, recognize the significance and the importance of a proper fear of the Lord is because a fear of the Lord is what produces holiness, is what produces and leads to right living. We see in Exodus chapter 20, one of the most profound pictures of the awesomeness and the the fear that the Lord deserves when he comes down and meets his people on Mount Sinai and delivers the Ten Commandments. After he gives the Ten Commandments, we see this in Exodus chapter 20, verses 18 through 21. Exodus 20, 18 through 21. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. And they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen. But do not let God speak to us, lest we die. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. What a dramatic picture of the holiness and awesomeness of God here at Mount Sinai. And the people of God react appropriately. They say he is terrifying. They saw the clouds, the lightning, the rolls of thunder, the great darkness that covered this whole mountain and the surrounding area. And they heard the voice of God. And what did it do to them? It didn't cause them to go, wow, that's quite impressive. I have some respect for that and some admiration for that. Absolutely not. It caused them to tremble in fear and say to Moses, do not let God speak directly to us for we will die. A proper fear of the Lord was inflicted upon his people and on purpose. But note what Moses says. He says, The Lord, he's, excuse me, I want to go my own spot. Here we go. He says, do not fear, for God has come to test you. What? That the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. It first of all sounds a little strange to us that he says, do not fear. The Lord has come to test you so that you would fear, which sounds strange to us, but it's, it's, I think, important for us to understand and see the connection here. This is something that is is oftentimes, uh, I think, pushed against too hard, but we do need to make a distinction here, that what Moses is encouraging the people is not to be afraid that God is going to wipe them out. Do not be afraid that God has somehow turned against you, for he has not. He is faithful, and he is good, and he cares for his people. So in that sense, there is a certain kind of being afraid or trembling that ought to be put away or put to rest in the heart of the people of God. And yet, there is a fear that should remain. A fear that should remain. Why? That you may not sin. 
You see, a proper fear of God and understanding of who he is leads us to holiness. To fear the Lord means more than just have a sense of respect or admiration for God. You can't read this story, put yourself in the shoes of the Israelites, and not say honestly that there was some kind of genuine knee-weakening fear that gripped their being. We all would have had fear. We all would have been terrified. And yet, Moses calls them, as we are called, to fear in a specific way, a way that rightly recognizes God's goodness and his faithfulness as well as his wrath. There are are examples that are always going to fall short of this kind of fear. And yet I think the one that, that for me rings most true is the relationship of a father and child. You see, for me and my boys and how they relate to me and certainly how I used to relate to my father, there was always a certain kind of fear that was there. Now, I don't mean that I, I was afraid that when my dad came home, he was going to beat me. I wasn't afraid that my dad was going to somehow just go berserk on me or, or abandon me or do anything like that. But at the same time, I knew full well what my dad was capable of whenever I transgressed, whenever I acted out, whenever I misbehaved or disobeyed. My dad loved me and he cared for me. And out of that love and that care, he had a zero tolerance policy for disobedience. So that when I disobeyed, I knew what I could expect. I could expect a piece of wood about this long, about this thick, maybe a belt, maybe a hand if I was lucky. I could expect his judgment. I could expect that he was going to deal appropriately with my disobedience. Never once did that lead me to live a life terrified of my father. Never once did that lead me to live a life where I just never knew what he was going to do. But it did lead me to a proper understanding of the consequences of my sin, the consequences of my disobedience. And the same is true with God. That the only way that we're going to have a proper view of holiness and right living is if we have a proper view of who God is and the fact that he also has a zero tolerance policy for sin. Our God does not tolerate sin. He does not allow sin. He will not let it stand. What we fear, that we fear the Lord the way the scripture calls us to, means that we realize that we serve a God who takes sin seriously and who has the force and the power and the ability to back that up. A God who has no tolerance for sin. So the fear of the Lord then puts in us a desire and a willingness for holiness. Fear of the Lord also puts God in control. A fear of the Lord puts God in control. It puts him in the driver's seat. Consider the Hebrew midwives in Exodus chapter 1. If you don't know the story of the Hebrew midwives, it's an amazing story. It's a short story. It's only a few verses long. It's about these two women named Shifra and Puah in Exodus chapter 1. And in the story, the, the king of Egypt, Pharaoh, he sees the people of Israel, how they have multiplied, and he becomes a little bit afraid of what they might do should they choose to turn on him and upon the Egyptians. And so what does Pharaoh do first? He goes to these midwives. These were likely two women who were leaders of the midwives or in charge of the midwives. 
And he goes to them and he says, whenever there, there is an Israelite woman who gives birth, if it is a boy, you are to kill that child. But if it's a girl, you should let it live. But their, their mission, their task that was given to them was as these babies were being born to eliminate all of the male children as they were born. But what these midwives did is amazing. We read, as Moses writes for us, these two women in Exodus 1, 17 through 19, but the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. These women were awesome. And by the way, we know the names of these midwives. This is basically the only portion of their story that we are told. Right here in these few verses and a couple that follow. And yet the Lord, as he is guiding Moses to write the book of Exodus, says everyone needs to know the names of these women. These women who feared the Lord and disobeyed Pharaoh. This man who could do anything he wishes to them. But because they feared the Lord, they disobeyed him and let the male children live. We know their names. Shifra and Pua. And it's not insignificant. The fact that we know their names, but Pharaoh, the king of the mightiest nation on earth at this time, is unknown to us. We have no idea who this guy's name is. As far as the Lord is concerned, as far as Moses is concerned, this guy is a nobody. And history does not remember him. But you know who history does remember? Shephron Pua. These women who, because of their fear of the Lord, acted in obedience and obeyed him rather than Pharaoh. They put the Lord in the driver's seat of their lives. And what we see happen to them and happens for all who fear the Lord is that the fear of the Lord for them brings blessing and freedom. We see this even in the conclusion of their story. We see at the end of these verses in verses 20 and 21, after we see their disobedience to the king, their fear of the Lord, this is what Moses writes. So God dwelt well with the midwives and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. The Lord blessed the Hebrew midwives because they feared him, that their fear of him led to them, led for them to blessings and freedom. It's significant to notice scholars have have noted who it is that typically becomes midwives in this day and age. It's not just, just any old person. Typically, the women who would go into this profession who would become midwives are women who were unable to have children themselves, unable to bear themselves, had no families of their own. And so they would take on the burden, the responsibility of helping, helping birth other children and helping create families across the nation. So you see the significance then and how great a blessing it was that in verse 29, because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. We have every reason to assume that these women might have had barren wombs, unable to bear children, and yet, because they feared the Lord, God blessed them and brought life where there was none. To fear the Lord is to take seriously his power 
and his commitment to his promises as well. In Joshua chapter 4, verses 21 through 24, we read this. This is directly after the people have crossed over the Jordan and are about to enter into the promised land. But after the Lord once again has parted the sea, or the river in this case, and has led them across on dry land, they build this stone, this memorial to the Lord. And this is what Joshua says about the memorial. And he said to the people of Israel, when your children ask their fathers in times to come, what do these stones mean? Then you shall let your children know, Israel passed over this Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over. As the Lord your God did the Red Sea, which he dried up for us until we passed over. So that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. To fear the Lord is to take seriously his power and his commitment to his promises. It means more than just, than just fearing God and his wrath upon unrighteousness, but also recognizing that the mighty hand of God, the same hand that destroys his enemies, that parts the Red Sea and the Jordan, is the mighty hand that is for his people. If we were to go back to the illustration of, of a father and son relationship, I don't know that it's that common anymore, but back in the day, I think it used to be common for, for kids to compare their dads. The phrase, my daddy can whip your daddy, was uh, something that was somewhat well-known. It speaks to a sort of, a sort of pride that, that a son takes in his father, a, a view of a father that he can do anything and he can take on anything. That was my view of my dad. I remember my dad, would, he played basketball, he played baseball, all these different athletics, football, whenever he was younger. And I used to think that my dad was the best at every single one of those sports. Now that I'm a little older, I know better. But I remember at the time, I thought there was nothing that my dad couldn't do. He was the best catcher in baseball. He was the best center in basketball. He was the best lineman in football that the world had ever seen. Why he didn't go pro was beyond me. I don't know. Our family could have been much better off, I think. I mean, he had it in him. As far as I knew, my dad was the best at everything. And although earthly fathers, we might view them in that way, we might think of them in that light, we know that's not the case. But when it comes to our heavenly father, guess what, church family? That exactly is the case. That our father who is in heaven can stand against anything that might come his way. That there is no enemy that stands a chance against him. There is no obstacle he cannot overcome. He is the God who has a mighty hand. And his mighty hand is for us. There is great power and freedom in knowing that the mighty hand of the Lord is for his people. Lincoln Duncan says, when you have a, a excuse me, when you have the real fear of God, there is always a sense that you know I don't have any business being here in God's presence. And yet, it is the one thing in all of life, it is the one place in all of life that I want to be. There is the sense that I do not have any right to be in the presence of God, and at the same time, it is the thing that I long for the most. This is what a proper fear of the Lord looks like when rightly understood through the lenses of of scripture. 
it leads us to both understand the awe and the significance of being in the presence of God and the fear associated with that. And yet it gives us a desire to be there and no place else and a sense of security to be in that place. This is the experience of Christians, isn't it? I know that we've mostly look at Old Testament passages and, and, uh, and a part of why so many today have lost a proper fear of the Lord is because they, they think that we serve Christ now, right? We're in the New Testament and Christ is much more approachable than the Lord. That the, the fear of the Lord was kind of an Old Testament thing you know, with pictures of Mount Sinai and, and, and destruction of the Canaanites and all these various Old Testament pictures. But you know, things are different now. We have Christ who is, who is just so sweet and nice. And I mean, there's nothing really to fear in Jesus, right? And yet, though many people think of Jesus as being far more approachable, far more tender, far less fearful than God the Father, I wonder if that's a proper estimation. Here's what I would say to that, in fact. The disciples themselves would not have agreed. Consider what happens in Mark chapter 4, verses 38 through 41. When Jesus, though, as he is sleeping on the boat on the Sea of Galilee, and this storm stirs up, and the disciples are, are afraid. They are afraid for their lives that this storm is going to take them, that they are going to be lost at sea. And so what do they do? They go and wake Jesus up. The guy that's just sleeping on the boat in the middle of this storm, in the middle of these waves, they go and wake him up and they're like, hey, don't you care what happens to us? We are about to die. And what does Jesus do? He stands up and says, peace be still. And like that, you know the story. The sea is calm. The wind stops. The rain ceases. And what is the disciples' reaction to this? They don't... Oh, thank you, Lord. Man, it's about time you did that. That was really nice of you. Gee, I really appreciate that. Verse 41 of Mark 4 tells us what their reaction was. And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? You see, the fact that we now live under the new covenant, that we have been redeemed by Christ, that we are now in him, united to him, does not mean that he is to be viewed as any less worthy of fear than God the Father is. More than that, the picture that we see of Jesus when he comes to judge the earth is not one of a suffering servant. It is not one of one who is gentle and lowly, but one who has come to conquer his enemies. That's exactly what he will do. Proper fear of God is essential for the believer, not to cause us to be afraid of the wrath of God that is going to be poured out upon unrighteousness. For we know that all who are in Christ have been forgiven, they've been cleansed, and there, the wrath that they deserve has been poured out on Christ. But to remember that God, that a God, excuse me, that has no power to judge or no concern for justice is a God who has no power to save either. You see, when we rob God of the qualities that ought to drive us to fear him, then we rob him of any ability to save. The very same authority and might and supremacy and power that led the people to say, do not let him talk to us, that led the disciples to great fear, saying, who is this? 
is the same power in which he is able to save a rebellious, sinful people. Without a proper fear of God, you have an improper view of salvation. What we actually end up realizing, in fact, is that fear and comfort go hand in hand in this sense. And that comfort is confirmed to us and built up in us by the Holy Spirit as we move to our next point, that a healthy church is one encouraged by the Spirit. The word translated as comfort here in Acts chapter 9, verse 31, could also be rightly translated as encouraged. And I believe that both these meanings of the word fit the context here. What does it mean to be comforted and encouraged by the Holy Spirit? And more than that, how does it relate to the fear of the Lord? As these are the two doctrines that Luke has now said the church was established and walked in these things, and they multiplied and were built up. Well, first of all, what it means to be encouraged and comforted by the Holy Spirit is it means that the application of our redemption and the results thereof have been accomplished. That the Holy Spirit is applying to the believer all the benefits of salvation. One of the greatest of these we see is found in Romans chapter 8, verse 15 through 17. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. You see, the role that the Holy Spirit plays in our redemption, in salvation, is the application of these things to the believer. Another part of what the Holy Spirit does and what it means to be comforted and encouraged by the Holy Spirit, it means assurance of salvation. Paul says in Ephesians 1, 13 through 14, in him, that is Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is what? The guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. 2 Corinthians chapter 1 says something similar in verses 21 and 22. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ. He has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. You see, the Lord God has given his Holy Spirit to us to indwell us and to act as a sort of seal or down payment of a guaranteed coming salvation. That those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. How can we know that that is true of believers, of us? Because the Holy Spirit has been given to us as a guarantee and a seal. Again, 1 John 4, 13. By this we know that we abide in him and he abides in us because he has given us his spirit. This means that when, brother and sister, when you feel convicted of your sin, when you see your need of the gospel, when you understand the reality of Christ's sacrifice on the cross, 
that it cleanses you of unrighteousness and removes all the wrath of God from you, you can know that you belong to God. Because all of those things, the conviction of sin, the understanding of our need of the gospel and the application thereof are a product of the Holy Spirit's work in the life of the believer. When we have the Holy Spirit and dwelt within us, we can rest assured and know that we belong to Christ and we have been given him as a guarantee of our salvation. And this is a great comfort to us, isn't it? To know that in Christ Jesus, as we've been indwelt with the Holy Spirit, that nothing, as God says, can pluck us out of the shepherd's hand. What it also means for us, the comfort and encouragement of the Holy Spirit, it means unity in the church. What is it that's going to sustain the unity of our church, of any church for that matter? There are all kinds of things that we might point to, that we might think what are what provide unity. It might be proximity, that we live near one another, therefore we have some unity. It might be particular interests that we share, that provide for us a sense of unity and fellowship with one another. But each and every one of those things, there is coming a time, there is coming a day when they will prove to be too weak to provide any sense of unity among the church. In fact, if the church's unity is built on anything outside of the Holy Spirit, then that church is destined to fail, if it is a church at all. As believers, we recognize that in 30 years from now, if the Lord wills, when we look back at the life of our church and ask the question, what is it that kept us together? What is it that kept division from taking over? What is it that God has done in this church in order to unify us as his people and in Christ? What is the answer? We all know that it has nothing to do with how the worship was performed or the snacks and fellowships that we had or how good the coffee was. We know that it is solely and entirely the work of the Holy Spirit to unify and to build us up together. Ephesians 4, 4 through 6 makes this clear. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. All of this by the power of the Holy Spirit, the one spirit in whom we have all been made together and are being built into a temple of God. The biblical combination of the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit will have, as it did for the church in Acts, a transforming effect on the church of God. And the effect is this, that the greater we have a proper understanding and fear of the Lord and recognize his holiness and his might and his supremacy and his authority to punish the evildoer, the more the comfort of the Holy Spirit and the fact that we have been saved through Jesus Christ will become all the more real and beautiful to the believer. The effect is that the, that the gospel becomes so sharply realized that it infiltrates our worship, it infiltrates our evangelism, it infiltrates our fellowship to where all that we do is affected by the fear of God that rightly flows in us and the comfort of the Holy Spirit which rightly sustains us.
These are the things that will lead to a healthy church. Dr. Kim Riddlebarger says about the fear of the Lord. He says, yes, God is to be feared, not just respected, even by a Christian who trusts in Jesus Christ. God is holy, righteous, and powerful, but we are sinful, and we deserve his wrath. We are weak and frail. Were it not for the cross, we too would be consumed by the wrath of God and would receive all the threatened curses. The very thought of life apart from Christ's cross stirs fear and terror and awe. And what he says there, there was a lot that ought to cause us pause. But he is absolutely right when he says the words, apart from Christ's cross. For in him, we have been forgiven of our sins. We have been cleansed. The wrath that was rightfully due us by this holy God that is to be feared was transferred from us to Christ and his righteousness transferred to us by the power of the Holy Spirit and we now stand and walk in new life. But in no way does this preclude a proper fear of the Lord, but rather it increases it and fosters it all the more. And a proper fear of the Lord produces and fosters in us a greater comfort by the Holy Spirit. The God who strikes down the wicked, who came down to Mount Sinai, is the same God who chose to save wretched sinners like us. The fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit are necessary ingredients for any healthy church and for any healthy believer. A healthy church will be a growing church in turn. I have labeled it and called this a, a model for church health, a church health strategy. Because church family, it is my belief and my understanding that a church that is producing and, and properly set in a healthy way, a biblical way, a healthy church, in other words, will be a growing church. A healthy church might not ever become a mega church. A healthy church might not ever grow to, to thousands and thousands. But let me assure you of this church family, plenty of churches that grow in that way are not true churches or healthy churches. You can read all kinds of books on management and business and how to grow your church and how to do all these things devoid of the gospel, devoid of any proper fear of the Lord. And that's what many churches have done. And there are hundreds and thousands and millions of believers who are in these systems that are devoid of a fear of God and therefore have no reason to find comfort in the Holy Spirit. So my appeal to you, church family, is as we read in Acts chapter 9, of these two qualities in the church, that the church throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and was being built up, and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. That we would seek to implement these doctrines and our strategy for becoming a healthy Christian. That we would seek to fear the Lord, the way he rightly deserves. That we would find our comfort not in our good works, not in our good deeds, but in the Holy Spirit, who is our seal and our guarantee. The one by whom salvation, redemption has been applied to us in Christ Jesus. 
and therefore be comforted and rejoice all the more in the magnitude of the gospel. Even in the face of adversity, like the church of Acts, if a church holds to these things and walks in light of these things, the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit, that church will grow and will multiply. Because according to the scriptures, a church health strategy is a church growth strategy. That is my prayer for our church, for Redeemer Fellowship Church, that we would grow to be a healthy church, not just a big church. And this is the way to do that. Let's pray.